Hello everyone, welcome to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 35. My name is Liam McNicholas and I'm an early childhood teacher working in operations in the ACT and I'm joined as usual by my wonderful colleagues, Lisa Bryant, who's an advocate, writer and consultant. Hi Lisa. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, nice to talk to you again and also by Leanne Gibbs, who's a leadership and policy expert. Hi Leanne. Hi, Liam. I also wanted to add to that that I'm a great lover of reality TV. <laughs> and I think that qualifies me to comment on a lot of things. Oh my God. I think it's more important that you're a PhD candidate myself. Oh. And I'm a student. I'm not a candidate yet. You have to earn your candidature. Oh, really? Oh. Will mm. talking about reality television help you with that at all, Leanne? Definitely. Excellent. <laughs> so we. What's your favourite reality show at the moment? <laughs> I, t- I really like MasterChef. <laughs> it's, but it just is the same over and over again. Maybe it's the reliability. <laughs> I think it'd just make me hungry if I watched that. <laughs> it does. <laughs> So we've got another fantastic episode lined up. We're going to be crossing a little bit later to an interview I conducted with the fabulous Beth McGregor, who's a psychologist, and we'll be talking trauma-informed practice. But before that, we're going to go through some things that have cropped up in the news over the last week or so. And we're going to start with uh, uh, looks like a long-standing centre that's closing down. And I'm not sure, Lisa, were you going to bring us this one? No, Leanne was. Oh, Leanne, over to you. Thanks. One day I'll get that Um, right. Yeah, that's all right. Doesn't matter. Um, This is a centre in Telegraph. We're both L's. We're all L's. We'll all all jump in and do whatever. (laughs) This is a a centre in Telegraph Point, which is on the north coast of um, New South Wales. And uh, it's also an outside school hours care service. And it is, well, I I think it probably has closed down by now because there were some issues with um, a, a lease that needed to be retended and uh, also the current business owner decided not to renew the lease. So the reason why I'm, I sort of was interested in this one is because I think for a long time we've been concerned about the impact of uh, changes to funding on smaller services in New South Wales and I'm sure that this applies across Australia. Now, this is not a preschool. This is a, a long day care service. But there's only a certain number of services, a certain number of children that make a service viable. And so I, I'm just sort of highlighting the challenges around rural services and uh, that they do attract smaller numbers of children, but they are no less deserving of an early childhood education. That's true. And if you believe the government that they'll be eligible for additional funding on the jo- under the Jobs for Families package, yeah. or if they're New South Wales services, they're eligible for additional funding under the safety net, whatever it's called. But it may be too late for the children of Telegraph Point. Yeah. Well, they're just, Precisely. Well, according to this article, it's its final day is due to be today as this is released so the, the friday mm. june 23 so i guess we'll um if there's any change we'll update in the next episode um i might bring the next one so this was some research that came uh via an sbs article with the headline one third of preschoolers own smartphones so sort oh of, shock moral panic oh, now oh no, my god what are the people doing to children but i like how i mean separately do when we get into the article a bit the the, the image has nothing to do with smartphones it has these huge bizarre 
touch screens in big plastic colourful things which I don't understand I haven't seen and apparently that's in an early childhood centre but yeah this I mean this is another one of those polls that seems to designed to either increase parents guilt or um, or sort of comment on uh, yes I guess the, the prevalence of this kind of technology with younger children I guess there's a couple of points quickly for me is that um, this just I guess sort of reiterates um, the, the the future complaint that my daughter is going to lodge against me because she neither, she's six and neither has a smartphone nor a fidget spinner which she has been begging for for quite a while so. oh, what kind of a parent are you i know these damaged to damaged children but um i just i, I remember I, i'll have to try and track it down and put it in the links i've got a feeling i'll fail but i remember there was a really good article because this sort of an article on this variation seems to appear every couple of weeks or something um and there was a really good article that looked at just sort of trying to quiet down the panic around this stuff and that as with any you know this it's just an entirely different generation growing up with these things now it would be it's that we we still don't know a lot so we hear all these hysterical stories about behavior issues and all this other stuff um it's very hard to tie it directly to this one you know a a smartphone a tv a a sort of ipad and that it's still very early days on this technology being such a part of our lives that we probably just need to apply the brakes slightly when we worry about this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I, I was in a um, fantastic workshop on the weekend <coughs> listening to Kate Highfield talking about um, about technology and I think I was getting – I think I may have been overexcited about it because she was so clever. But it, it was um, – I mean, it's like anything and her – discussion about it is it's like anything that you're doing with children the relationship that you're building is the most important aspect of it and the relationship that they are you know the the actual activity that they're engaging in so it's not sort of just passive technology yeah exactly mind you children under 18 months should apparently have no access to technology what at all no screen time no I Apparently. find that all. I find that all really. I have a a completely uninformed but strong view on this. Is that children <laughs> you should need run? You should run do, for parliament, to, Lisa. Yeah, I could. <laughs> I could do that for sure. Children need to learn what they'll be doing in life. Yeah. And children will be using screens in life. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, when we needed to run across the plains and kill animals. That's what we needed to learn. But, but I don't think we you know, did it as children. We didn't do that well, as we children. imitated doing it, didn't we? Well, so they can imitate using a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a debate for a full episode, I think, before we get too bogged down. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't have... Sorry, I, I know we sort of digressed. I, I, I don't have any hugely firm opinion on it because I think that you're right, Lisa. You're absolutely right. But I and I think there is a lot of panic about it. But it was it's just interesting to hear the the different perspectives. But of course, it just really comes back to how we engage with these things, how we work with children. Absolutely. Now, Lisa, I know can this can next I one just, is your. This... Can I just very quickly yeah. apologise to our listeners? My mute button on my microphone has broken, and <laughs> I keep thinking I'm muting, but I'm not. Every time got I a have little a coughing. Cough. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So apologies to everyone who's having to hear my coughs. <laughs> Mostly apologise to me, Lisa, because I've got to listen to it several times while I edit. So, 
Don't worry about the listeners. Oh. Worry about me. <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> now, Lisa, this next one, this has to be yours because it's a classic terrible happening in an early childhood centre, which is your favourite subgenre of early childhood news. So do you want to bring us this one? The one today from Missouri where um, a childcare worker has been accused of taping up a, char- a four-year-old with gaffer tape. I didn't put that one in, but I did put this one Thank in you. where a, a man <laughs> a man came into a Western Australian childcare centre and had to be tasered before they could get him to leave the, the place. And he basically run amok in a childcare centre and was threatening people. And the reason I put this one in was because this... I think we have to face that we're in a world where childcare centres are no longer excluded from people that, you know, may for whatever reason want coming into them and create havoc. And it sounds like that the educators in this particular service did a, a very good job of keeping the children away from the man that was the 21-year-old that was causing issues but I just, you know, I really think that services need to update their policies on lockdowns, etc. Can I ask the obvious question? Why, why do they have a taser? No, I don't think no, they have a taser. The police had a taser. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the <laughs> child behave. <laughs> so the police arrived with a taser the guy. That's not how I read that article. But that's, a, yes. <laughs> I thought you were. I thought you were. Training. I thought you were two seconds away, Lisa, from saying we need to update our procedures to include purchasing a taser in each centre. <laughs> Every service should have one, especially when it's professional right. development. First aid kit, taser. asthma anaphylaxis kit, taser. I mean, that's just what everyone has. No, but do you? Do you think that services are in more danger, Lisa? Because, I, I mean, I, I feel yes. that. Do think, I do think they are, not from unidentified strangers, but we know that the age at which previous, you know, like 15 years ago, the number of couples that split up when their children were under five were relatively small. That number keeps increasing. And once you have... You know, domestic and family situations happening in that naught to five years space, you do have the possibilities of um, angry parents bringing those kind of issues onto serv- into services. And just even through casual reading of the media, I can tell you it's, it is happening more and more in services across Australia. Well, don't worry about those smartphones then. Yeah, that's right. Least of the problems. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So our next story is from uh, Western Australia, which is about a school that's been uh, fined $9,000 um, after an incident with a child. Uh, I'm not sure which of which of you two wanted to bring us this one. I think this is Lisa again. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's another one of my genre of shock horror things happening. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that this was a, um, it was an out-of-school hours care service um, in a Catholic school and the six-year-old child left um, on the second day of the school year and was found by a member of the public 20 minutes later. But what was interesting is that um, it's actually gone through to prosecution and they've been fined $9,000. Wow. So 
I just think that's, um, you know, another thing that services need to take into account, how easy it is um, for children to go through gates that other parent, that parents leave open. And it says here which, that in, in, um, in West Australia, this is, it's the 10th service to go through this tribunal since April 2016 for, for this, for this offence, losing a child. They do. Australia does seem to lose children with great regularity. Maybe they prosecute them though. It's a bit of it's a bit of dodgy journalism though, isn't it? Because it says, I mean, the issue happened, but it says her mother returned her to the service at approximately five twenty-seven. I'm pretty sure her mother was taking her back to let them know that they had. <laughs> like, um, I don't think she was returning the child. <laughs> they could have the child back there, and they could lose it again. That's right. <laughs> it's funny; these articles have all come through with massive ads for BHP as well. I don't know. <laughs> Did you notice that? It's like recruiting now. <laughs> And then I think our last story we're bringing this week is about a early childhood centre in Mandura. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly. And again, I'm going <clears> to <throat> not try and guess which of you two was going to bring us this one. <laughs> yeah, look, this one was me and this one infuriated me. That's why I had to... <laughs> Because it's... Uh, let me just read you the... the the, the most particularly offensive paragraph. Staff members, staff members at a Mandura, <laughs> Mandura's in Western Australia, for those that don't know, childcare centre, have taken it upon themselves <laughs> to support local parents with the rising cost of having oh a baby. God. Bubbles Childcare Mandura decided to drop their fees from June 19 to make childcare more accessible to the city's families. And it goes on to tell you that they're dropping their fees by $20 a day, right? What the article doesn't say (laughs) is that Buggles is a brand of G8, the biggest, you know, corporate childcare provider. So I very much (laughs) doubt if staff members of the service had any part of the decision to reduce the fees and it may well have been because G8 currently has a, a, a occupancy rate of 70% in its services. I note also that the service is rated at working towards the national quality agenda, mm. uh, national quality standard and that other services in the local area are exceeding. Hopefully, parents. Oh my goodness! It's every quality area in working towards. Oh no! Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, oh dear! Gosh. I'd be dropping my fees too because you're not paying for much. <laughs> and has been and has been at that that level since July 2013. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Four years. God, it's not Four been a, years, those children. Oh, my goodness. It's not been a good week on the news list for Western Australia this week, has it? No. Oh, dear. No. All right. Well, we'll have more <laughs> more news items next week and probably some more in Lisa's uh, shock horror incentives subgenre, which we can always look forward to. But we'll be taking a very quick musical interlude and then be coming back with uh, the interview I conducted with the fantastic Beth McGregor. So stay with us. Hi everyone, welcome back. And I'm here, very excited to introduce Beth McGregor to the show. Beth, welcome to the Early Education Show. 
Thank you very much for having me, Liam. So, Beth, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I'm a psychologist. My background is in child protection. Many years ago, that's where I started my work. I've always had a very strong interest in supporting children's social and emotional well-being. Um, and uh, from moving on from child protection, I've been working in learning and development for many years. And I currently work as a learning development consultant. I provide training, supervision, support, mentoring and consultation to child welfare services and early childhood services. And full disclosure, I feel like I'm on a board and need to declare a conflict of interest or something, but <laughs> you've been um, working with uh, me and my colleagues at the organisation I work with for most of this year, which has just been yes. really fantastic. So um, I've been wanting to get you on the show for quite a while, Beth, because I think the work you do is really important and particularly in the context of early education, I don't think we talk enough about um, trauma-informed practice and, and the work we do. Um, but so it's fantastic to have you on so i thought we Thank could you very much. we could start beth with do you want to for those who may have mainly only heard the terms that have bandied around i'm quite sure what it is or sure. haven't heard of it at all so mm-hmm. what's 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 the deal with trauma informed practice okay great so we've had a real growing understanding of what is trauma and the impact it has on children's psychology and neurobiology over the last i would say 15 to 20 years and um that uh, research has been hugely helpful and because it's been so helpful in our understanding of children and children's needs there's been a very strong movement across the world really for education centers settings to become trauma informed so what that means generally is well let's talk about what trauma is so trauma is an experience of overwhelming fear terror and distress that overwhelms a person's capacity to cope um, we often think about trauma in terms of things like um, a car accident or a fire or that single incident trauma but when and that certainly can occur for children but the thing that we need to be most worried about for children is something that's called complex trauma so complex trauma is where there's ongoing persistent experiences of fear for the child uh, that is not adequately regulated by the caregiver uh, complex trauma often but doesn't always involves the caregiver themselves being the source of the fear for the child or um just simply unable to provide the safety and security that the child needs. Is that a good beginning? That's fantastic. That's, that's I mean, yeah, and, and I'm sure for, uh, you know, the, the early childhood professionals and educators listening, they'll be, that'll be ringing some bells in terms of children. Uh, yeah. They work well, with. Well, yeah, and often when I'm working that, certainly what happens, people say to me after the training, oh, I was thinking about this child, this child, this child, this child. Um, and, and the thing about trauma that I always talk about is prevalence. And so, uh, you know, I, I did a session with some teachers recently. I think the school was about 500 and I asked them to identify how many children in their in their school they thought might have been traumatised and most of them thought, you know, maybe 10. Whereas I said to them, really, they're looking at a minimum of 50 out of a school of 500. So wow. the um, the prevalence is far, far, far greater than most uh, lay people might understand. But those who work in the field of trauma understand its prevalence and the research is is overwhelming about that if anyone's interested they could track down the adverse childhood experiences study that's called the aces study 
that's an American study, but there are similar Australian statistics. So I feel very, very confident in saying when you're working with children, you can expect at least one in 10 to have experienced or be experiencing complex trauma. And so every single educator in every single setting will at some point in time come across children who are traumatised, whether they recognise it or not. And what are the sort of things, Beth, so knowing what we know and um yeah that's really interesting about the the science has sort of just has just sort of skyrocketed in those last sort of 15 to 20 years yeah so when we talk about sort of trauma-informed practice that obviously mm-hmm. implies that the work isn't so much about doing things to children it's actually about professionals and and educators and we're going to go i'm going to talk specifically about early childhood settings just in a little while mm-hmm. um but in just in, in general in terms of all you know in terms of you know families and um I would imagine think people like caseworkers and those kind of mm. things. What, you know, re, re, as general or as specific as you like, what are the sort of things when you're talking about practice in those spaces? What are the things that, you know, are most important in working with children from a traumatic background? Okay. okay. <laughs> a nice so, simple question to start where do we with. Start? Okay, so there's five <laughs> principles of trauma-informed practice, generally speaking, across all settings. So that's safety, trust, collaboration, choice and empowerment. So those are the five principles of trauma-informed practice. When it comes to, you know, what I think is important to understand trauma-informed practice, that is to understand the impact that trauma has on a child's neurobiology and psychology. You can't be useful if you don't really, really get the impact of trauma. Now, a lot of people think, oh, children are too young and blah, 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 blah. But of course, we know that's ridiculous really we know that children as young as just a couple of weeks old can experience intense trauma that can have a lifelong impact so um one of the well let's look talk about the impact on the neurobiology then so when children experience overwhelming experiences of fear what happens is their stress response system uh the fight or flight um system becomes overactive uh if we take the example of domestic violence as a classic example so a child who lives in a in uh an environment of domestic violence um to survive that uh, environment. They need to become hypervigilant or hyper aroused, and that helps them survive. So that you know, if dad comes home and he's in a bad mood, they know to go and run and hide under the bed, or they know how to protect themselves because they're hyper vigilant to tone, as, as an example. Um, now that hypervigilance is not just emotional; it is neurobiological. So what that means is that their amygdala, which is the um, part of the limbic system that um, monitors for danger actually becomes overactive uh, and um, it, it's it's biologically altered. So that child can survive their home life uh, through being hypersensitive you know, increase the chances of survival through being hypersensitive and hypervigilant. But what happens then if they come to an early childhood setting, they bring their hypervigilance to the early childhood setting and uh, can be alarmed at a loud noise or um, a a firm tone or uh, sometimes even um, a smell or a a colour something might trigger for them a sense of danger and then that child uh, gets triggered, let's say, I don't know, let's say uh, an educator speaks in a very, very loud 
um, aggressive tone that triggers for the child a sense of uh, fear. Their amygdala uh, tells them they're in danger, their heart starts pumping um, and they feel in danger and so their fight or flight reflex is activated and so they might go and attack the educator. Um, so we need to understand the neurobiology to make sense of the behaviour. So I think when we're talking about trauma-informed practice, um, understanding that children's brains are altered, and not just their brain, but their perception of uh, the world and relationships is altered. And so a child with a secure background might come to a centre and more or less they might have some settling in issues, but more or less they expect that, the that they're safe and that the educators will be available to, you know, be there for them. A child who's experienced trauma brings in a very, very different set of expectations into an education setting. Um, and those expectations can often lead to very tricky behaviours because they don't feel safe, they don't feel secure, they don't trust. Uh, and as a result, they can um, engage in behaviours which, from our perspective, I mean, someone, I would never use the word naughty, but someone may use that word to describe the child's behaviour or attention-seeking or difficult or um, there's all sorts of words that could be used to describe the children's behaviours. But for, if we're working from an trauma-informed practice, we would always look at what's driving the behaviour, what's the need that's driving the behaviour, what is this behaviour telling me about how this child makes sense of the world? I've just said a lot there, Liam. <laughs> no, no, that's great. I mean, that, that's that's what we're here for. But so what, often the way I sometimes helps me get my head around new concepts is is talking about uh, what things look like when they're not in place. So I know you've worked with a lot of you know professionals uh, in the education space as well as wider. Mm -hmm. What is when there's not you know an engagement or an understanding or it just hasn't been introduced yeah. into it, mm -hmm. of trauma informed practice what are the kind of things you can you can see and you can sure. and, and, and yeah. be in place yeah great okay so um okay so first of all so if i just use a classic example not all children right but a lot of children who've experienced trauma um, which is often hidden, by the way. So it doesn't have to be the big ticket stuff like abuse and neglect and domestic violence. It can often be quite hidden and quite subtle. But let's say a child's experienced trauma, they come into an education setting um, and what's been disrupted as a result of the trauma is their emotional regulation capacity uh, and their emotional regulation systems are, are, are quite significantly disrupted um, and their capacity to trust. So then they come into an early childhood setting and let's say you have a child who um, hits a lot, throws a lot, uh, destroys the room, pulls the educator's hair out, um, pushes other children, bites, um, you know, as a classic example, as a very classic presentation of a child who's been traumatised. If they go into an early childhood setting that is not trauma-informed, well, first of all, the poor educators, I guess, is where I have to start, right? It's it's very, very distressing for those educators because they don't understand the behaviour, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're 
sometimes missing, you know, chunks of hair. There's, <laughs> and, and they're worried about the other children, you know, of what's going to happen to the other children. It's not fair that this child is taking all of the attention. It's just attention-seeking. It's not fair to the other children. So a non-trauma-informed setting would mean that those educators are not supported to see beyond the behaviour. And, and the behaviour, and because they're not supported to see beyond the behaviour to the need driving the behaviour, the child can um, attract uh, all sorts of labels. Um, the child can be blamed for their difficult uh, behaviours or the parent can be blamed. So blame is often because we feel helpless, so we kind of blame. So there can often be a lot of blame. Uh, educators can um, understandably become controlling um, and trying to control the child's behaviour or they can become very dismissive of the child and emotionally disconnect from the child because these children can be really, really hard work. So they might, you know, run and hide, you know, or, <laughs> or uh, you know, just kind of walk away from the child or what we call um, covert hostility, can express covert hostility to the child because they're feeling so frustrated and inadequate. Um so in a non-trauma-informed setting, these children might uh, be labelled, they might be expelled, they might um, just simply struggle and and not ever achieve within, within their education setting the, um, the real support that they need. And that's a tragedy, really, because a trauma-informed early childhood setting or any other education setting can see with the right approach the most extraordinary turnaround in a relatively short period of time. And I'm talking, you know, weeks to months um, with the right approach. Yeah, and I think that's um, what it, it, it's, it's sort of that classic, and irony is not the right word because it it's, <laughs> it's not quite heavy enough, but that the children who are most... Those those behaviours are, you know, calling out for support and help. But exactly. the behaviours are so intense that they're driving. You know, if if you don't have that background yep. understanding, they're they're actually driving people away, and making things worse. It's that, yeah. It's a very it is it's a tragedy. I think you use the word. Um, but and sorry to interrupt, Lee, no, but it's right. also you know this is not a blaming conversation around educators because children tend to elicit the kind of care that they expect. So yeah. if children expect to be rejected. Like if I'm – so one of the really important things to understand about trauma is that um, there's always an element of shame uh, with uh, an experience of trauma. So there's something wrong with me. Is not obviously a cognitive thought, but it's a sense of shame. And so if a child um, has a sense of shame um, and feels unworthy and not good enough and inadequate um, and flawed – then they can elicit care that reinforces that perception of themselves. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. So, um, and you gave us a nice segue before I then interrupted you with another with another statement, but um, so taking that from what we've got a bit of a sense of uh, what a lack of um, having, you know, a trauma-informed background can look like in a service. So, what can it look like when there is a trauma-informed, you know, practice amongst the team and from, from the sort of leadership down? What can that mean for a service and, I guess, for those children specifically? Yeah. So um, 
So I think I really like what you said about the top down. I think that is how it happens. You know, so the children need, and I'll get to what the children need in a minute, but the children need a particular kind of emotional support. But it's equally as important that their educators get the same kind of emotional support because this is emotional work. And if the educators are not adequately supported by the leadership, then I don't believe at all that they can... Uh, you know, they can do a, a terrific job and, and really, you know, be fantastic, but they can't they can't function at their optimum if they're not getting the right support. Okay, so I'll, I'll come to your question. So um, the first thing about being trauma-informed is about our view of children. So if we view children who are engaging in difficult behaviours, and they're not always engaging in difficult behaviours, I have to say, by the way, uh, it, it, children who've experienced trauma might also be very withdrawn and, and, and they might hide their needs, which is equally as worrying. But let's take the children with the big behaviours as an example. We'll start with them. So in my view, being trauma-informed is around is around understanding and seeking to understand when that child is pushing another child or, or hurting or grabbing or just having a meltdown because they couldn't have the red scissors, whatever it is, um, that that is always an indicator of need. And very, very often for traumatised children, it's an indicator of a need for connection and support for regulation. So children who have been insecure relationships at home have better self-regulation capacities and better capacity to make use of co-regulation with educators than children who've experienced trauma. So when educators see these behaviours as a bid for connection and an expression of need for regulation, then the educator's attitude towards the child changes and they're able to approach the child in a way which is much more helpful. So people often talk to me about strategies, and yes, I do talk about strategies, and I mean, I can talk to you about that today, that's fine, but strategies only work if educators are seeing that the child, um, Robin Dolby, uh, the most wonderful Robin Dolby said to me once, she said, we need to support educators to see the little child beneath the big behaviours. That's lovely. And when they can see the child as vulnerable and in need of connection and in need of regulation, then everything shifts because they approach the child with empathy and plans and strategies and emotional support plans come out of that space of understanding and empathy rather than out of the space of how, of how to try and fix and change the child. That's great. Yeah, actually, I might. Um, I, lo I love a good. I love a good quote. I might flick one back to you that stayed with me for a while. There's a mm. an American academic called uh, Barbara uh, Colarus who said, mm -hmm. "I'm going to probably mangle this slightly, but um, <laughs> it is uh, that if children come to us from um, happy and contented, you know, uh, homes, that it makes our jobs easier. If children yeah. come from uh, upset and broken and trauma and traumatic backgrounds, it makes our job more important." Yes. I might borrow that. Can I borrow that? It's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I think you see, uh, you know, if I if I take that and unpack that a bit, I think educators who've been supported to work from a trauma informed way really get what you just said then, and 
they also feel incredibly empowered because now instead of having to try to fix this annoying child, I see behaviour as an expression of need. I see that that child is just, you know, had a complete meltdown because he can't have the red scissors. I see that he needs me. He needs me because he can't regulate. He needs me to come in. He needs me to connect. He needs me to use a soft tone. He needs me to have empathy. He needs me to stay with him until he can regulate. He needs me to help him recover. Um, and so as an instance, so educators who understand that the child needs them and know how to meet that need, and it really is relatively simple. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy or straightforward, but understanding children's needs is relatively simple. Um, they feel so much more, so much more empowered, confident, and the professional satisfaction. I've worked with so many educators who just who just cannot express enough the growth in their professional satisfaction in understanding the needs of their cho these children and their capacity to support them. Yeah, it's fantastic. And look, and, uh, and, and Beth, you know, even from the times we've, we've talked over the past year, I think you're probably aware of my strong bias towards the importance of the first five years and the importance of yes. early childhood education. <laughs> but um, And I've got a sneaking suspicion, I know your answer to this one, but how... You know, in terms of in terms of the the big the big picture of trauma informed practice, how 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 is, is the first five years an important time for this kind of work? Oh, <laughs> I'm lost for words, Liam. <laughs> uh, well, look, it is the time for this type of work. So you know, one of the videos I show in one of my training talks about how um, you know. We can do it when the child's 15, 20, 25, 30. It can be done, but it's so much easier to be that it's done in the early years because of neuroplasticity and because, you know, just because of neuroplasticity and the child's readiness for that. So that's what I was saying about how really miracles can happen. And I have heard so many of them, Liam, you know, I can't even call them miracles anymore. It's just what I expect. <laughs> within a month or two months, you will see a change. Um, with a change in approach. The other thing I'd say with TLM is I, I remember having a session with a centre director years ago and she was, you know, just talking to me about this little fella and, oh, my goodness, you know, he was he, – it, everybody was so stressed um, around him and it got to the point where they just had this rolling roster of people who were watching him because he was an absconder and they were just afraid that if they took their eyes off him that he would be – you know, um, over the fence, over the fence, and you know, across the freeway. Um, and I just pause for a minute. It, you know, we've got to think about. You know, we know when the stress response system is activated, children go into fight, flight, or freeze. And so I help educators see that that is an in, that is a flight. That's the child's stress response system being activated, and the child responding by fleeing. You know. Um, anyway, that's by the by. So I was talking to her and. Um, and remember, you know, her frustration at facts not doing this, of child protection services not doing this and that and the other. Um, and I, I just I can't remember the words I said to her, but I, I just said, yeah, but he's with you five days a week. You know, you guys, the guys, can make the most profound difference. I mean, not like obviously, Liam goes without saying, child protection services and all those are incredibly important. Um, I'm not saying that, that they're not. 
But early child, you know, what I say to early childhood educators is it's kind of like you are the medicine. You are the treatment in some sense. And once again, you know, my caveat to that is, of course, some children need professional therapeutic treatment. And I'm not saying that um, educators should stand in the way of that or that, that, that children won't need that if they've got good quality early childhood education. But if we look at what happens with trauma, if that occurs within the primary caregiving context and in their home, what happens is the child develops a view of themselves as faulty and develops a view of the world as being unsafe and develops a view of relationships as not being places uh, where which are a source of joy and pleasure but places which are a source of, of, of fear and mistrust. And that's me in a very, very small way trying to summarise John Bowlby's work around what he calls the internal working model of attachment. So that's the view that children develop. Now, that view is problematic throughout life. If, if that view becomes embedded in their psychology and their biology, then that becomes incredibly problematic throughout life. They can't you know, they really struggle to form peer relationships. They struggle to trust teachers when they're at school. They struggle in um, romantic partnerships. Uh, they struggle to concentrate because life's dangerous. I mean, I haven't even talked about the attentional deficits that um, that emerge through trauma. Um, so the struggles that that child experiences are, are multitudinous. So... The, the, the issue is that these beliefs and these, these uh, it's beyond beliefs, but this, this schema, if you like, the this, this sense of how the world is, forms in their early relationships. So the place for new beliefs to be formed is in a different set of early relationships, which is where early childhood educators come in. So, um, so all of the research, Liam, shows that Children who've experienced trauma in their homes, um, you know, even with very well-meaning, loving, caring parents, sometimes, it, you know, sometimes, you know, just bad things, difficult things happen in families. Um, children who experience that, who have also had a secure relationship with another adult uh, in their life, do way, way significantly better than children who haven't had a secure relationship. So the experience of a secure relationship is absolutely crucial in in transforming, you know, every single domain of the child's development, and I mean every single domain, social, cognitive, emotional, even physical health, every domain of development um, is enhanced through experiencing a secure relationship. And so I think that's really, I mean, I don't think, I know that's really empowering for educators because when they see, you know, I show a couple of videos in my in my training where, you know, people far smarter than I are talking, like Dan Siegel and Bruce Perry and others talk about that. And I, I say to the educators, well, what did you get out of that? And for them, you know, there's kind of like, there's this enormous, like, oh, my God, you mean... I can be the person that makes the difference. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, um, I've completely forgotten the point I was making. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so, so yes. So the first five years, yes, absolutely. And, and early childhood educators are absolutely best placed 
to make a huge, huge difference. And I have heard and seen so many stories where educators are transforming children's lives. Yeah, Beth, and I think, you know, it, it's it's hard to underestimate how important that viewpoint of yours is. And it's one of the particular reasons I wanted to uh, chat with you on the show was that, you know, early childhood education and, you know, early learning um, or child care, as it's still often called, is often seen as the sort of poor cousin, if seen at all, to, you know, primary and secondary and even, you know, allied health and all that kind of stuff, despite the overwhelming exactly. body of research about the work yeah. we can do. So, and, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, and Beth, there are very few people that will then uh, take that knowledge and then actually go in and work and, and A, speak about the educators and, and the system, you know, so respectfully the way you do, but also go in and do the work with with um with with centres and with educators and with early childhood professionals, so it's um it's yeah we we you know speaking on behalf of the entire sector, which I'm certainly not empowered to do, but we <laughs> we we don't get that a lot, Beth. We we it's it's yeah. yeah it's really so on behalf of the sector. Thank you very much. Look, Liam. I mean, I I, I appreciate that, and it's also you know it's just a privilege. You know, uh, the educators I work with, and I mean this, you know absolutely authentically inspire me every day and teach me an enormous amount you know I just kind of walk in and I I share I share a perspective I work with people as a way of understanding children I talk about what children need and I help educators see need and then educators just run with it and do the most amazing creative things with the ideas that I shared with them um, and then they share with me about the transformation they're seeing with children, and um, it's yeah, it's profoundly satisfying. Yeah, um, and look, obviously, trauma informed practice, you know, works within a you know a, a pretty specific framework around supporting uh, children who have experienced you know trauma or vulnerability. <laughs> but um, do you think you know those, those principles and that approach to to working with a trauma informed uh, lens can help you know work with all children? Oh, uh, without a doubt. And that's the exciting thing. You know, I talk to, uh, to educators about, you know, children who might be with it, very withdrawn as an instance. That can be an indicator of trauma. Children are very self-reliant, withdrawn and not expressing need to educators. Um, it can also be, you know, a temperament thing. And educators say to me, well, how can I tell if it's trauma or temperament? And I'd say, well, the terrific thing is that it doesn't matter because, <laughs> you know, because and the same with difficult behaviours, you know, whether it's trauma or not, it doesn't matter. The, the point is that all children, I mean, it's tried to say all children have the same needs, but it's also true, really. You know, all children need to feel safe. All children need to feel seen. All children need to feel validated. All children need to have to be thought about in a particular way and held in mind in a particular way with with grace and respect and generosity and warmth. All children need to have someone thinking about their internal world, you know, their thoughts, their needs, their feelings, um, their intention, and to have an educator identify for them what it is they're feeling, and all children need educators who will co-regulate, uh, so that is be uh, be emotionally available to support children's regulation around, you know, small to big incidents, as well as teaching self-regulation, so teaching breathing strategies, teaching um, other ways that children can learn to calm themselves. So all children need that. I mean, that's what a secure relationship is. Uh, and so... 
when educators are supported to look beyond behaviour to need, you see um, you see a transformation in their emotional availability with all children. Uh, and, and now that's not to say, Liam, I must obviously clarify, it's not to say there aren't many wonderful already emotionally available educators out there who, are, you know, are seeing need. Um, but for many educators I work with, even, even if they're absolutely terrific and professional, there's something, if I may say, there's something in the work that expands that or you know part of the work I do Liam is helping affirm for people how important their work is and how valuable it is when they take time to slow down and be with children and how how important their reciprocal relationships are and when I help educators identify the importance of their work um I think it's I'm, I'm digressing now Liam but I think what it does is really reinforces for them how crucial this is and and it does help expand it to all children so in answer to your question yes all children need security and when I talk about security I'm not I'm not talking about a nice feeling you know I, most people I'm hoping who would listen what I would would understand from the research that security means something very very specific from from the psych anyway they may or may not but from the psychological literature security means something very specific and a secure relationship is measurable and children who are in a secure relationship have different biological markers to children who are in insecure relationships and so all children need security now children who have experienced trauma have more difficulty feeling secure and the work involved in helping them feel secure is harder it's more tiring <laughs> it's uh more intensive but um all children need security yeah and essentially that's what trauma-informed practice is is offering that emotional availability connection and security yeah and it's interesting you know that i was reflecting just as you were talking about you know the importance of those early relationships of the first principle of the early years learning yeah. framework is secure respectful and reciprocal exactly. relationships yeah. and i i very much doubt it's an accident or random that that's the very first very well, first principle it, yeah exactly right and you know i'm not reinventing the wheel here <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know i mean the research is out there it's it's absolutely out there it's well understood it's well accepted um, and, you know, I just really just try and support educators to unpack what does that look like? What does that really look like? like you know, what does that really look like building those relationships? That's, um, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Beth, thank you very much for your time uh, coming on the show. We, we really appreciate it. I think everyone's going to really enjoy this discussion. If people want to find out more about you or about your work, um, or even, you know, look at, um, you know, working with you when you have a spare moment, because I know you're very busy working across the country. Where can they sort of find you and get in uh, touch so with you? So my website is bethmcgregor.com. That's Beth, B-E-T-H, and McGregor is M-A-C-G-R-E-G-O-R.com. Uh, and on useful links, I have, guess what, Liam? I have a whole bunch of useful links. Oh, yay. So I've got a lot of, I work very closely with the circle security using that as a framework. So I have uh, a whole range of circle security videos. I've got, I work, I use a conscious discipline uh, 
model from America. So I've got conscious discipline videos. I've got videos on trauma-informed practice in education settings. I've got uh, infant mental health um, and uh, just a whole range of other um, links. And so obviously that's free. People are, uh, you know, very, very, very free to go and, and access those resources, which I do hope are useful. I will add my strong recommendation that everyone goes and check those out. So, Beth, thank you very much again for your time. It's my pleasure, Liam. Thank you. All right, we're back. So thanks again to Beth McGregor for having a chat with me. It's been fantastic, A, to to work with her in my my day-to-day job and also to to have that chat about such an important part of our work with early childhood uh in a, sorry, in early childhood edu- ed- education. I'm, I've lost the ability to speak because I've just conducted a long interview, obviously. <laughs> and, and can I just say how well both of you are doing with your interviews? You're really becoming great journalists. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> well, you've brought our standard up, Lisa. We've got to, we've got to do that. But that, yes, that's great. And that's such important work, Liam. So thank you for to you and Beth. Yeah, no, all thanks to Beth. So, but we'll go on with our recommendations for the week. And Lisa, as oh, no, sorry, Leanne, as always, I, I turn to you. What are you bringing for us this week? Um, this one's from the Guardian, and I'll I'll just let people enjoy it. It's called No Classrooms, Lessons, or Homework: New Zealand School Where Children Are Free to Roam, and it's it's a very small number of children. Um, and the 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 reason I like this is because I think that in our world we're preparing um, children or children are being children and we're preparing children for diverse futures and I just love the idea that these children will take up particular particular roles in the future and they will be very very happy children um, despite yours and and uh, Lisa's aversion to mud <laughs> I think these children are getting plenty of it um, but I, I just want to highlight that Dr. David Berg, who's a senior lecturer in education at the University of Otago, he was he was a little bit concerned that children wouldn't have the right skills as they were heading into the future with their bush education. But I do want to note that he actually um, used a sentence that had poor grammar in it. So I just <laughs> take that. Probably the journalist <laughs> translation. <laughs> I don't know, but it just gave me it gave me a small thrill to see that. <laughs> it is always good that feeling, isn't it? Thanks, Leanne. Lisa, what have you got for us this week? Look, I'll I'll try and be as quick as possible. This is a report by um, uh, UNICEF, basically, and it's about how children in rich countries are meeting the UN's. Um, uh, sustainable development goals. So the UN sustainable development goals for children are things like end poverty in all its forms everywhere and end hunger and ensure healthy lives and achieve gender equality and empower all girls. So they're big lofty things, but um, that's what they're working on. I think by 2030, they're trying to achieve all those goals. And the interesting thing about this is that it ha- it's a report card, so it has a league table of where um, where countries, you know, compare to each other. And unfortunately, Australia isn't doing so good. So if I just have a quick look at, say... Um, what an absolute shock. Uh, 
quality education, yeah? Australia is 39th on the league table. And I think there's 39 countries on the league table. So, you know, really not doing too well there. If we look at poverty, we're 12th on the league table. That's a bit better. Hunger, we're down at 28. Um, and uh, reduced inequalities, we're at 17. So, you know, we're really, like, falling behind those countries like Chile and Lithuania and Hungary and Slovakia and Malta and Latvia, let alone the ones like Norway and Denmark and Sweden and Finland and Iceland, you know. We're just really doing quite badly in a number of, of equality measures. And what, what does... Is that put down to in the report, or is there, or do you have a perspective on that, Lisa, as to why we're doing badly? Um, I think a lot of it comes from inequality of income and um, non-successful transfer measures between tax and and you know, yeah, uh, otherwise, so that we're not doing as well on things like that. The education. Oh, now let me think about that. Would it be because we're one of the few countries that, um, you know, that doesn't spend much on early education and doesn't guarantee children two years of preschool education? I noticed that a, another report came out that we'll probably cover next week um, uh, came out today, which once again shows Australia is the country with the, the OECD country with the lowest proportion of spending on early education. Mm. High fives. Yep, mm. work to do. Yeah. And then my one is I feel like we've neglected the conversation for quite a while. So I'm, <gasps> I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought it the back into play. conversation. So um, this one's a specific article, but I'm more kind of interested in the series as a whole. So it's part of a series the conversation is doing called Curious Kids, which uh, answers generally sort of science questions or, or even in a whole range of other areas um, that have come in from children. And the, the, the question this week is actually from quite a young child, age six, uh, Hendrix in Western Australia, and it's about who made the ABC song. Um, and I've, I've got a huge soft spot for these kind of things where, you know, some, you know, where sort of children's questions are taken seriously and answered in quite a serious way. There's a couple of US sites that do similar things. So, um and I was actually quite fascinated by the answer to this one anyway. So actually maybe it's more because it's aimed at What is people the are... answer? Well, I, I'm not going to spoil it. You, you can go out and find out. It. You can go out and find yourselves. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that's a good one to keep track of. There's some, it's a, it, I, like I said, I like the one that sort of take children's questions seriously and a good role model for, for the work we need to do in the sector as well. So I hope you enjoy those three uh, quite different pieces to look at for the week. Mm. But that's, that's it for another episode. So I'd like to... Thank you, everyone, for sticking with us for another week. We really appreciate your continued listenership, if that's a word, well, it is now. Um, if you want to get in touch with the show, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. You can uh, find us uh, by, by email, earlyedushow at gmail.com, or you can head to our website, earlyeducationshow.com, and just click the Contact Us tab. Um, we're also on Facebook and Twitter, and the handle on both of those is at 
early edu show. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, if you like what you hear and you want to make sure we can keep sort of rolling along and doing this every week, uh, there's a couple of really important ways. You can support the show uh, financially directly, which is very, very, very much appreciated on our Patreon page. And you can find that by heading to our website and clicking support the show up near the top. Another great thing you can do is rate and review the show on the Apple Podcast Store. This bumps us up in the rankings and means more people can find us and and join the crowd. Um, I'd like to say a big thanks to someone who left a nice uh, review on there just over the last uh, last week. We really appreciate it. We will always call out people who leave them, so uh, you know a bit of a good incentive to leave one. Uh, so I'd like to thank, and I swear this is the name she has put on the the review is Lucy Madbum. So thank you, Lucy Madbum. <laughs> And you get the added joy of me having to say that and, and send it out into the public in recorded form. So we very much appreciate that review. Can I also do a call out to Martel Menz, who did a, a list on her Facebook page today of her favourite, oh, I think it's three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten podcasts. And, of course, what was number one? Um, oh, thank you, Martel. Wow. And when I said, when I responded and said, I'm glad we're at the top of the list, she said, aren't you the only Australian (laughs) early childhood podcast deservedly at the top, which I thought was quite nice. Thank you, Martel. We need to get Martel back on, actually. Yeah. She was top. She was top. Yeah. I think it's mainly because it meant we had Lisa away. So if we get her back, (laughs) maybe Lisa will run away again. But... um, (laughs) That's uh, such a pity we can never have Liam away. <laughs> I know yeah. you're stuck with me. You're stuck with me. But um, no, I think I think he deserves to be on every week because he he actually does the hard work. He does the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you can also find if you want to catch up with us all individually, we mostly hang out on Twitter. So you can find me at Liam McNicholas and me at Lisa J Bryant. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. I think we just need to point out that Lisa is dwarfing Leanne and I's in terms of follow account. So if you feel free to just follow the, uh, Leanne and I instead of Lisa for a while. Yeah, so we can build up our yes. followership. Yes. Is yeah. it a competition? Is no. It? No, not, not, not until I'm winning it. But you know what? Well, I, I, might, I might crack a thousand soon, which would be yay. quite amazing. Really? Yeah. I'll Go tell Leanne. you how it works. The more you tweet, the more followers you get. Ah, unfortunately, ah. I've now hit almost 35,000 tweets. Wow. I haven't Which even got well, you are. Really? No, you definitely have no you deserve to have all of those followers, Lisa. You Entirely deserve it. Liam, you, you haven't even yet hit 20,000 tweets. Know. You're only on 18,000. Well, I've got some work and to do. And I'd be surprised if Leanne's into her... Oh, Leanne, you've only done 3,200 tweets. So in terms of followers per, per tweet, you're probably doing the best out of <laughs> we need As to you have... said, Lisa, it's not a competition. <laughs> we'll get some data analysis onto that. But while we're doing that, until next week, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. And from me.